Well, I'm going to go ahead and get going this morning. We have a lot of bit of stuff to do. We have a couple of minutes to go the official starting time. First off, let me say, I, you know, we were we were in Texas for the first day and they came back. I, I'm thankful I'd done some prep in advance because this means we know Vernon's situation after surgery has not been good. So the last couple of days have been sort of hectic. I, I don't have everything exactly as I might hope. So give, give me a little grace here. If, if, if there's some slide in here, Julie and I had some birthday party. <laughs> Uh, Lawrence and I, we taught this and slipped out. Uh, I, I actually didn't just copy all these slides, but for some reason the title slides are still in here from 2018. And we're looking forward to doing this again because one, although we thoroughly enjoyed it and I think the class went well, I think both of us, even though we came into the class with sort of an idea of what we thought Revelation was about, after as we went through it, I think we both sort of grew and expanded in some ways our understanding of it and have been looking forward to an, another opportunity to do it. So it's time has come around and we grab the opportunity here. So let me get into it here. First, let me just, if you can't see all of this, I don't know if people on this side put this hair that way. And I apologize, Heidi. I, most of my slides have a black background. They don't all show up that well if they have a lighter background to the whatever streaming audience we may have. But here's the schedule. I didn't, again, one of the things that I've read sort of, um, I'll print these out for Wednesday so you can have an idea of where we're headed. But as you'll see here, we're going to spend three weeks in sort of building up to getting in the letter. So if you aren't interested in that, you know, you might attend another class for three weeks. But then, then as we get started in late January, other than a couple of Fletch classes, we're going to go mainly chapter time, although a couple of a few places will break down within a chapter. And yeah, look, Revelation, we can spend many times on some of the chapters. But what we want to do in, in doing it this way is try to retain continuity and keep the overall picture of the book in mind better than trying to break it down in just a few verses at a time. But we have, I don't know, 30 something classes, so we need to do something in the classes. So we're going to do some background stuff. And then at the end, kind of pluck out things and let you all engage in this too. You know, what are some lessons, broader lessons we might take from the book? We'll, we'll mention a few of those this morning if we have time. So as we get into this, one thing I, I like to do just a little bit of at the beginning of talking about books, not dive into it deeply, but you know, as time has come on and things like the Da Vinci Code have come out and you know, a lot more interest in all these other Gospels that have been put down and excluded. People, I think, sometimes need just a little bit of reassurance that these letters that we have in the New Testament are truly first century documents. Now, a person will have to make adjustment as to whether they think God is behind this. But in terms of, is this really from the first century? And so, we have a tremendous amount of evidence on various books. I won't go into this in detail, but we have little fragments of Revelation. I've listed what sections here from these papyri, 
that are in these locations. I should have, we were in London in November, I should have tracked this down. I could have taken a picture on my phone of virus 18, I guess, and we went to the British Museum. Although they now, it's like everything in the world, the really good stuff that you could use to just walk through and see, now that's in some special collection you have to pay extra for, like the Rosetta Stone. Now, you didn't need to know all that, <laughs> extra. And then there are complete texts. Uh, the Sinai Manuscript, dated using the 300s AD and Alexandrian Manuscript, contained complete collections. But I think even more than these, even though I think these are important documents for putting together the text, but in some ways the question, is it really a first century document? I think in some ways it's best answered by these for the second century writers, these early Christian writers, who refer extensively to a variety of New Testament books. In fact, you can pretty much piece together what we have from Bible from their writings. And starting with people like Justin, as we call him, Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, these are some of the big names of that period. They all make reference to it. Clement gives an interpretation of the book. Uh, Melito is somewhat lesser known, but he wrote into Irish what we would call a commentary that it doesn't survive to this day, but was known to be like Eusebius in 300. And so, you know, these people, and, and it's not as though we don't have access to this. We have copies of these people's writings at the library. Some of you have copies of these people's writings. And so, you know, if this is being talked about in the second century, it's not just some invention of people somewhere in the second or third or fourth century. Right? Well, I, well, I asked, well, well, to who is this written? Well, well, and who wrote it? John to the seven churches of Asia. I think this is, and I think we'll come back to this on many occasions, I think it is important in a book so filled with symbolism and these sort of epic visions that remember this is written to real churches and to real people living in a real period of time. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't have some implications or some reference, references to other things. And even maybe the use of these seven churches itself may contains some symbolism in using seven rather than, well, actually, or eight churches in this region. But, you know, maybe there is that. But I think these are, I think chapters two and three help us see this. These are real people. And I think that's important for keeping us grounded as we go through the book and thinking about the book. Well, who is the John that wrote this? Most of us would say almost immediately the Apostle John. And I think for good reason, again, you, you can dig into this as deeply as you like. But there were early attributions of it from Justin, Pius, Irenaeus, all of whom lived in the second century, and then people lived in the late second and first and third centuries, Tertullian, Clement, Origen. They all ascribe it to him. And he, again, this commentary from the 100s, Polito. I mean, this is a sampling of not everyone. But there are critics of this view. Uh, the 
Gnostics, as we refer to them, for the late 100s and beyond, many of them questioned John, the Apostle John's authorship. Some, a few early Christian writers, although these don't tend to begin before Dionysus, I think he was a student of Clement, if I'm remembering right, I think I did that wrong. But much of this criticism is based on textual critics because of the linguistics. Yeah, now I think many of us, our first reaction is, oh, Academics are always on these rabbit trails. You know, I, I can say that from having lived my life in academics. Yes, we do. We, you know, we go down rabbit trails. But look, linguistics is a serious academic area. It really does do, if you want to figure out, right, you take the Federalist Papers and they're anonymous, and which ones were written by James Madison and which ones by Alexander Hamilton. The few by John Jay. Well, if you take their other writings, we our writing tends to be a lot like our fingerprints. You know, even words like a and the and little <coughs> things, our phrasing tends to reflect ourselves over and over again. And so they use those sorts of things as well as grammar use and vocabulary use, and it gives you a sense: does, is this Alexander Hamilton or is this? James Madison. And so those same kind of methods are sometimes applied to the Bible. The difficulty here, and I think you all can sense this, you know, if you look and say, well, John the Apostle wrote the gospel. And this revelation of John seems to have stylistic differences. It seems to have some other differences. But why might that be even if John the Apostle wrote both, or is the author that way? A lot of time passed between the two. Yeah, if they're not written at the same period of time. You know, again, I'm, I'm, I don't know, you know, I know most of the alphabet because of mathematics gets used, but other than that, I don't know much Greek. But people that do will tell you, look, the Greek in Revelation is pretty sketchy. You know, it's grammatically has some flaws here and there. And, but that may be, look, the Gospel of John may have originally been written in Hebrew, or that other people may have been scribes for John and writing the Gospel of John, but not the revelation of John. That we see that, that doesn't diminish authorship, but we see Paul using scribes, and so, you know, that can make a difference Time, and so place the time for the writer, what else might make a difference? This is a different type of book. It's a, it's a revelation, it's a, it's a prophetic book. Yeah, as opposed to mainly a historical narrative like John. Now, that would account for a lot of the stylistic differences. It might not account so much for the grammatical differences, but, but you could easily see many of us, look, you know, if you gave me or you the job, let's write a history of Washington Church over the last 10 years. Now I want to write some epic poem about some subject. Well, you know, again, the style and vocabulary might be different. And so, look, there are limit, even though linguistics is a very serious area, and I think in many ways has very interesting methods, 
But there you have to use it with some degree of caution. That again, if you're taking Alexander Hamilton's work that you know is his, and you compare it to something that he wrote about the same time that is of the same nature, well, that's much easier to make such comparisons. So again, I, I think a lot of stock, just to sum it up, should be put in these people actually lived close to that period. People like Irenaeus, Irenaeus, as we mentioned later, he's just someone who was a student of Polycarp, who was in early life an associate of the Apostle John. And Irenaeus, well, that's, that's a pretty close connection. And I, I might put that above uh, 21st century linguistic critics examination without putting that person down. All right, here's, you know, we, we can spend the entire semester on when and what is this about. We're not gonna do that, right? So if you're coming in here with that, that is not where we're going. And so the two main ideas, and the majority opinion is that it was in the 90s AD under the reign of the Roman Emperor Domitian here was the period in which he was the emperor, or it was in the 60s during or maybe right at the after the reign of Nero and during the Jewish war with Rome, you know, 66 to 70 AD, right? So, and the deity connects closely then to the what is it about? Those two are intimately connected. I will say, you know, even one of those, I think, you know, in some ways, if you want to take the view, I'm not exactly sure, that both of those, I think, coincide with the idea of what we said a few minutes ago. These are seven real churches in what we now call Turkey in the first century. I think all of us can place it there. And I think it's critical that we think about it in that way. Now, the dividing line, I think, does make some difference. But both of these, whether 60s or 90s, this, what gets referred to, what, what do we mean by calling, there was a cult for the emperor, the emperor cult. What, like, we, we don't use that term much except for, you know, you know we, we use it to refer to sort of extremists that are right here on the fringe of society. Some people might even refer to us <laughs> that way. But, they're using the term cult, much like we would use the term religion, the emperor religion. Now, again, in our world, now most of us at Lawrence of the Years have tried to encourage us not to compartmentalize our religious life, our life of faith, and the rest <coughs> of our life. But in our world in which we live, religion is highly compartmentalized. We don't think about necessarily integrating religion and politics and social life, economic life. But in the Roman world, all of these were highly integrated. And Caesar was at the core of it all. And starting, in fact, Caesar Augustus, what was his actual name? Octavian. Octavian. So you have, you know, you get all sorts of lessons in here. You have a little history lesson, so I'm, so the history box, you get your moment in here as well as those textual critics and whatever. But so Octavian was his name, and as he defeats Mark Anthony and he becomes sort of takes on the mantle as the 
Julius Caesar's heir, he ascribes to himself the name Augustus, the August One. You know, again, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but it, it in itself is a blow it up of, I'm not just a pagan, I am a person of much greater importance. Now, in his lifetime, maybe particularly in Rome, he might have permitted this outside of Rome, but within Rome, Augustus did not permit himself to be viewed as divine. Now, it's parts of the Roman world that was not necessarily the case. And so after he died, he and then other Roman emperors began to be deified, viewed as deity. And you see in scriptures like this, the acts by which the divine Augustus gave the whole world to the Roman people. And then, so this further develops, you know, so you have Augustus and Jesus is born went to Tiberius, then as emperor, and then Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. Well, all of them, after their death, are viewed as divinity, except the ones that want to be forgotten. But some of them, like Caligula, they even begin, you know, sort of this sort of insane behavior and began claiming divinity even in their life. Nero is one of those that this statue doesn't survive to that day, but it's described well enough. It sits, the Colosseum wasn't there in Nero's day, but as you go from the forum toward the Colosseum, this, I think it was something close to 90 or 100 foot statue of Nero is erected. So even if you're not saying I'm divine, a statue like this is more or less saying, I'm divine. And so this idea that Caesar is, he is at the, he is giving you life. He is giving you peace. You owe your adoration to him and at least your worship after he's dead to all the things that he's done. That's what's meant by this emperor cult. And in many ways, this emperor religion works itself into the writing of the New Testament in a variety of ways. Even the phrase of the gospel in many ways is sort of a countercultural stab at that idea. That because the emperors are talking about the good news that Augustus is bringing, the good news about the emperor and or Christian writers are saying, here's the real news. Here's the real news. And so this revelation of John really goes head on against this idea of the emperor as the basis of life, the emperor is some kind of God, the giver of good things. But then if you'd say, well, more specifically, why, why would we date this in the 90s? Well, there was some degree of Roman persecution under Domitian. Eusebius in the 300s, he wrote, of famous Christian histories that survived <coughs> in our day, dates it in the 14th year of Domitian's reign. Some would refer to chapter 13, verse 3, where the beast's head is mortally wounded but returns. And so, say, Nero may be this beast referred to. And then some would say, well, that's then the emperor, 
not the very, there were a series of very short white emperors, but the next main emperor of Vespasian, notice, no, no, this is Domitian. This is someone who's acting like him. Look, the, there are lots of critics, especially among secular historians, of the idea that there was a lot of persecution under Domitian. Uh, among Christian writers, because Eusebius talks pretty extensively about persecution. You know, people have been in class say, well, the persecution was widespread, and so there's a debate that goes on. Sometimes people who lean toward the 60s view will really denigrate the idea of much persecution in the 90s, and vice versa. I think that's a, not a wise way to go. It's like, oh, that really was. Look, why would we not have a lot of detail about persecutions in the 60s or the 90s? Who was writing the histories? The victors. The victors. And at that time, at least in the short run, who were the victors? The Romans. And so, you know, it's not surprising that the Romans aren't going at great lengths about the persecution of people that they were persecuting, <laughs> that they hated. And so, again, because in one way, there's not a tremendous amount of evidence about the persecution in the 60s or the 90s. They're both somewhat in the dark, and we have to rely on little hints and pieces. The real piece of evidence, I think, that has dominated through the centuries, and the reason that the book is largely dated in the 90s, is because the statement of Aramaeus. For it, taking as the revelation of John, was seen not a long time back, but almost in my own lifetime at the end of the mystery reign. And so, Irenaeus, like I noted, knew Polycarp, who knew John personally. And so, you know, again, I, sometimes people are criticizing this was sort of, you know, trying to cut down Irenaeus. You know, he was... He was a bishop in what we call the city of Lyon, France, a very eminent critic and enemy of those <laughs> emerging Gnostics. He wrote a famous series of texts called Against, Her Against Heresies. He was a very important figure, and I don't think we should try to denigrate him, even if one disagrees with this. But, one, sometimes, even with such connections, things can be mistaken. The bigger issue that arises among critics of this, and not so much Mark's orders, is it, is it a right translation? You know, when it says for it, some would claim that this would be for he, for John was seen at near the end of back in the mines. Now, I would say one, I, 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 I'm not dismissive of this, but I'm also not sure it should be viewed as definitive. And I'll be upfront. And so if you want to bail out of the class after today, Lawrence and I both lean toward the idea that the book was written in the 60s. I'll talk about why. But on the other hand, we're not going to beat people over the head with this. And this isn't going to become the focus of the whole class in here. And uh, so our objective is not some maniacal, we've got to prove this is the 60s. But why would people like us, you know, why would we lean in this direction? And, and I will say, you know, sometimes this has, for people, <laughs> many of you would know the names like Homer Henry and 
and Beryl Jenkins, you know, and widely respected teachers and teachers at colleges that many of you may have had. And so generationally from the 50s through the 80s and 90s, because, you know, people took that view, the view of the 60s almost became viewed as sort of a weirdo view. You know, who, who would view it this way? Not that Jenkins or Haley would say such a thing, but because their teaching and influence became so widespread that the 60s view of the churches that many of us would interact with, this view was not very often discussed. And if it was discussed, it was sort of somebody who sometimes did have it as their little hobby and would wear people out. You know, like, Let me, have you heard my view about when Revelation was written? You know, and it over and over. So, Lord's not, I hope you don't view us as that kind of person. So we'll try not to be. But one is that there was both Jewish and Roman persecution. And I think this book refers to both. We often, because these aren't recorded in Scripture, we often don't discuss these much. But I think there's pretty good extra biblical evidence that James, the brother of Jesus, this leader in the church in Jerusalem, eventually in the 40s, 50s, 60s, he was killed. Josephus notes this in 62 AD. So you have an important leader in the church of Jerusalem. Paul is killed somewhere 64 to 68 AD. This is Again, 2 Timothy leads up to this, and then the more is said by people like Clement and Ignatius. Peter, probably around 64 AD. So why would this matter? So, and I talk about this because occasionally when I've had conversations with people, they go, well, you know, why? What, what would people care about, you know, the, why would Christians care about the destruction of Jerusalem? Well, why would they care? Well, it's not just that. These would have been monumental events. Who are these people? The pillars. The pillars. And yeah, we don't have as much, there's some detail in Eusebius and others about the other apostles, but in some ways, these are the leaders among the leaders. I'm not pointing out Peter or Paul as you know, above the other apostles, but clearly in scripture, we see them, in many instances, taking the lead. And so the deaths of these people, what would that have done and potentially done to the faith of many Christians? What questions would arise with the killing of such people? Why did God allow that? Why did he allow this? Where is this headed? Is this... Is our message, is the message of Jesus going to be stamped out? And then there's this enormous event, this fire in Rome that destroys a huge amount. Nero blames the Christians. I don't know that the population in general bought Nero's idea, but the Roman historian Tascus, who wrote about 35 years after the event, said, accordingly, arrest was made, first of all, of those who pleaded guilty, then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted. Not so much, not so much the crime of firing the city, but the crime of the hatred against humanity. Again, being a Christian and not accepting the emperor religion, not 
engaging in the temple worship, not accepting God's, was viewed as atheist. You were an opponent of all that was right and good. And you were a hating man. A mockery of every sort was added to the deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and bears, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burned, to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. So again, this build up, it is, Again, I think we're coming it off base and we think oh, this is a, a 60s view means the book is all about just the destruction of Jerusalem. That this is about events that are transpiring that are big challenges to the faith of people living in this period. So then a little bit more, and I'm going to pluck out, we could go on and on, and Lawrence might have different views, and some of these things will come up again as we go through the book. But I want to talk about two or three things that for me over the years kind of made me lean more in this direction. One, it's just what I've called here the narrative arcs, the big story themes and threads. One is, as you get into chapters 12 or 18, you have this woman who's also represented as a city that I would suggest, although this could be disputed, that starts out as a city or woman of faith, who is then turns adulterous and is contrasted into this emerging woman who is referred to as the new Jerusalem. Forgive me. Seeing the the story develop here and the story that's being tell, told it yeah this is why sometimes dividing up oh we were over here in chapter 19 and over here we're at chapter 12 well these chapters are connected also i think for me too the idea that both the beast and the adulterous woman both are persecutors of christians and then the beast destroys the adulterous woman. Yeah, and so the idea, and maybe that's one part of Rome or the Roman Empire turning on another part of that, but for me it makes some sense that, well, this is, you know, again, the story here isn't just about <coughs> Jews in Jerusalem. It's a story of the beast, the woman, the story of Rome, the story of Judaism opposed to Christianity and killing Christians. Then there's extensive, I and mean, Lawrence have a little chance next class for focusing on this. We've got to fit a ton of Old Testament stuff into one class. Uh, but there's a lot of Old Testament symbology and prophetic symbology, and particularly temple references. And the book, in many ways, in ways that might not stand out to many of us, borrows heavily from temple worship. And so, in chapter 11, it at least seemingly, again, maybe in a vision sense this is the case, but at least seemingly as the angel was sent out to measure the temple, seemingly the temple is still standing. And then the temple and these two witnesses in the city and these two witnesses that have been killed in a city figuratively figuratively referred to as Sodom and Egypt, 
But then, so he says, figuratively referred to Sodom and Egypt, but then he adds, where also our Lord was crucified. Now, yeah, one well, could say that's a metaphor too. And again, I'm putting this out there as well, maybe it's not. And then this statement that the Gentiles will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I'm not going to talk about this because this really gets into things we'll talk about in the next couple of classes. But I think, again, this links closely to things that Jesus says in Luke 21, Matthew 24, things that are said in Daniel. All right, and by this point, well, I'm scared. So, there's my pitch for the leaning there. So I said, I'm not going to wear everybody out. Man. Well, let me ask a couple of questions. Brian? Yeah. I think that an important point, that Luke, Matthew 24 has always been a big thing for me. Because one of the things that people try to do with Matthew 24, and they also try to do with the book of Revelations, is chop it up and come up with these artificial divisions. You know, you mentioned chapter 12 and chapter 18 in Revelations, how they go. And it's hard to, to separate that when you look at, at those chapters or, those, or the book cohesively and read that and then try to understand, well, how should I adapt my understanding to this cohesive work as opposed to trying to say, well, I think I have this view of what happened. Now, how do I make this scripture fit that view? And I think we get a little bit of that in the book of Revelation, for sure, people try to do that. And so I think it's just important, and I, I love that you made that point, because I think that the scriptures tie better when you look at them cohesively, as opposed to trying to say, well, this verse has to be some kind of split. Yeah, I, I think, again, this kind of goes back to this kind of reinforced idea of looking at sort of the big, the, the narrative in the big picture, I think is is somewhat convincing. Even many of the people who lean toward, because of Irenaeus' statement, many people who had dated in the 90s who have written commentaries say, look, from an eternal literary standpoint, it, it does seem to make a lot of sense, sort of the 60s view, but we're not going down that road. Now, not everybody says that, but even there are many who do. Let me, let me ask this question. Does it help to have an idea of when and the specifics of what it was about. Forget about this, forget about Revelation. And I really want to emphasize, sometimes we treat Revelation so differently than other New Testament letters. Does it help if you turn to 1 Corinthians and you have some idea of what's going on in the church? Well, just kind of to piggyback on what he said, um, I think I read somewhere that it's almost 70% of Revelation there's like 400 plus verses in Revelation, and 70% of them almost are resorting back to other scriptures in the, New in the Old Testament, which kind of tells us that the Bible is the best interpreter of itself. And so kind of like what he said, if we're going to better understand maybe some of the things that are in there, going back and looking at some of these previous books and, and reading through it, is going to probably be better than trying to create an assumption of what it means and then try to, like he said, fit it into that box. Yeah. You know, again, we, in the Matthew class, uh, 
with Sterling, you know, sort of emphasizing that the idea of context is king. Certainly things that we begin to learn from outside of scripture about what's going on in Corinth or what might have been going on with Rome and in the emperor cults. Look, this can be informative, but as Matt is expressing, look, many of us are never going to access that. And a lot of that wouldn't have been available to Christians through the decades and centuries. But what is written in the text and what is written in the context is accessible to all of us. And let me ask you, aside from symbolic stuff and the book of Revelation, what are examples of where people, I think, who are intending to elevate the Bible and use it, but when they take the Bible and they take it as if it was written directly to them rather than indirectly through other people living 2,000 years ago to us, come up with ideas that for us we think, well, that's probably not right. What, what, is, what are some instructions Jesus gives? Direct, what we would even call direct commands that people utilize and on the basis of it do things in a way that we think, well, that's not really necessary. In fact, it may even be dangerous or beyond maybe dangerous. What about, if I said to you, you're going to be able to take up serpents, what would your reaction be? In fact, I've got some sitting out here. <laughs> well, you know, we said, well, yeah, he said that in a specific time to a particular group and that <coughs> But many people, they read that and well, that's written to me. Well, again, people do that with Revelation. You know, we understand that, Lord, we may not know all the details going on in 1 Corinthians and all the problems, but at least trying to gain some insight in what's said in the book, understanding, as one person said, you know, how can we really apply to us until we understand what was meant to them? Now, my second question here is, are they still useful? Are these letters and books useful even if we can't nail everything down? Do we know exactly the setting in 1 Corinthians for all that was going on? No. Does that mean that we say, well, okay, you know, unless we can find a man living with his mother's wife, 1 Corinthians 5 has no relevance. Or, you know, unless... Kyle is suing me, you know, this later chapter, I don't remember which chapter, has, when that man has, you know, we, we might as well take that out. And so we're caught in sort of a paradoxical situation where we want to be careful and use things contextually and draw things out by first understanding what was meant to the people to whom it was written or said. But on the other hand, there are timeless truths that we can extract without not, you know, without figuring out all the details. And so I want us, and that's sort of the tag we're taking with this book, is to say, look, there are specifics that I think link up with some things that are happening in the first century. And the better we see that, I think the better use we can make of it for ourselves. But on the other hand, there are things that we can glean from the book that whether it was written in the 60s or the 90s, if we still say, well, okay, it was written to people undergoing difficult things, and we can still extract things. So we're going to try to find kind of a middle ground in that and saying, you know, letting the specifics and some discussion of that help us, 
but without becoming you know, fixated on, well, you know, this, this has to be this first century of them. At least that's my view. You know, Lawrence, he's cantankerous and it's hard to get along because I don't know if he's going to be that way. But. Why was it written? Well, we're going to run out of time quickly. We'll have many chances. We'll go back over this in later class. To show his servants what should soon take place. So that the ones who read it could be blessed. He said, blessed is the one who reads the words and to hear it and take it to heart because its time is near. He expands on that in different ways in the book. Chapters 2 and 3, he used sort of this repetitive, stylized version. If you have ears, you should hear. The one who really takes this to heart will be the one. And the one that hears my words and listens They'll be the ones who are victorious. At the end of the book, he said, I'm coming soon. And those who keep the words, the, you should keep blessed is the one who keeps the words in the scroll. Blessed are those who wash the robes. You know, but the question then is, why for us? You see, people live for a century, and this is a help for them. But is this just a book of history that has very little applicability. And so we should really fight and claw and peek punch each other to make sure we know exactly the historical event. Was Revelation written? You think the Holy Spirit gave this to us so we could battle over this for 2,000 years? <laughs> Seems like it. Sometimes you need to scratch your head go. Things are still not always what they seem, and there are things going on that John has insight to that still uh, help us to realize that what we see on the earthly plane and is most obvious to us. There's there's more going on than that. Yeah, we don't again using these other letters. The issue of meat sacrificed idols is not a burning thing on which we're really duking it out these days. And, but yet, those kinds of instructions still have value for us as we try to generalize them and make them applicable.